Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in here on Monday, October 7th. I am Jeff Andreas, and of course, thank you so much for tuning in. Always appreciate your lovely listening ears. Uh, Hopefully you had a fantastic weekend and are ready to kick off another work week here in Kamloops. The weather here today doesn't look like it's going to be amazing and tomorrow doesn't look like it's going to be a whole lot better, but things do appear to be brightening up at some point come midweek and then of course that will uh, hopefully hold true heading into the weekend. So uh, uh, as of right now, the weather doesn't look too bad later in the week and hopefully that uh, that trend will continue. I got a good show lined up here today. In about 10 minutes, I will be speaking with my usual Monday guest, Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. We have a couple of things to talk about, including a woman in her 70s who received a distracted driving ticket just for having her cell phone charging in the cup holder. Now, a lot has happened in this particular case since it was first made public last week, so we will go over all of that, but I simply uh, could not imagine getting a ticket because my phone was simply visible in my car. And not only that, uh, this was apparently this woman's first ever ticket in her life. She was 70 plus years old and this was her first ever ticket. $370 fine. I couldn't imagine how overwhelmed she must have felt uh, with the situation. Kyla, of course, took on this woman's case and uh, to find out exactly what has happened over the course of the past week, well, you're going to have to stick around to find out. In the back half of today's show, I will be speaking with the Ministry of Advanced Education, Skills, and Training. Late last week, it announced 15 programs that are being launched across the province to help survivors of violence or abuse access skills, training, and supports crucial to their independence and healing. Now, the goal is to help break down some barriers to employment, offer wraparound supports that could include work experience and job placements and mental wellness services, offer some skills training that will prepare participants to work in a range of industries, including things like healthcare, horticulture, transportation, technology, and more. Um, these programs will be offered through Kawasa Neighborhood Services Society, so I'll be chatting more about all of that at around the 35-minute mark, and of course, those services will be available here in the Kamloops area as well, so stick around a little bit later to find out more about that. And to end things off, I will be chatting with the CEO of RoomView. It's a Vancouver-based real estate marketing company that looks at the number of active realtors that are working in the city of Vancouver. Now, uh, I know some of you are probably like, yeah, who cares about Vancouver? We're up here in Kamloops. But for the first time in a decade, uh, the city of Vancouver has seen a dip in the number of real estate agents working in BC's biggest city. Now, uh, this is a bit of a surprise to me. I'm sure we can guess what some of the reasoning behind that might be, but I'll be chatting with Sam Merbot at around the 50-minute mark of today's show just to find out exactly what they are seeing and determining as the reasons behind that drop and uh, just get a little more breakdown in terms of why that might be happening. So stick around for that. But to begin today's show, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Election 43. We are exactly two weeks away now from Election Day, I am both excited, but admittedly a little bit relieved for it to be over. So we're getting to that point, 14 days left, so we're into the home stretch here. Uh, It's going to be a a jam-packed couple of weeks when it comes to election coverage, I am certain. A big week uh, with the first Commission English leadership debate set to be televised tonight. That will run from 7 to 9. That will be the first time that Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, Green Party leader Elizabeth May, Bloc Quebec Quoc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet, and People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier all go Head to head. Here's uh, Jerry Smith from the Canadian Press just to give a quick snippet of what will be happening throughout the day today as party leaders campaign on day 
27 of the election. How leaders come off when face-to-face -face with their opponents can make or break a campaign. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and conservative leader Andrew Scheer, two front runners, both have morning events in Ottawa. Trudeau has a photo op with teachers. Scheer makes an announcement at a downtown hotel. The NDP's Jagmeet Singh and the Greens' Elizabeth May appear to be fighting for third place. Jerry Smith, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Now at this point, there has been very little movement in the polls since the election launched. Latest polls have the Liberals in the lead at 34%. The Conservatives are right behind them at 33.8%. So very little separating those top two parties. Now, the NDP is sitting at just over 14%. The Greens just under 10%. The Bloc at 5% and the PPC at two, and of course, there's a another couple percentage points in there as well for the others. Now, for those wanting a more localized look at what the election has in store, we here in Kamloops have an election forum all set for tomorrow evening, which you can listen to right here on Radio NL or online at radioNL.com. So, if you're looking for a you know what's going to be happening in terms of that election process and and what our local candidates have in store and are promising for us here in the Kamloops area and the Kamloops Thompson Caribou. Well, you can listen tomorrow evening to find out. A few deeds to keep in mind here moving forward as well. Advanced polls are set to open this Friday. Uh, they will be open throughout the Thanksgiving long weekend here. So, yes, if you are worried about heading to the ballot box on Monday the 21st, well, you have this upcoming Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to have your say in who will form the next Canadian government. Uh, have you received your voter card? I got mine in the mail and uh, just last week, I believe it was, and it shows me where and when I can vote. Definitely some important information to have. Uh, you know, if you want to actually have your say and cast your vote, well, you need to know where to go to do that. So that's important. Now, uh, I've only lived here in Kamloops for about three months. So if I was able to get my voter card without issue then you should be able to as well. You have no excuse. But if you haven't received yours yet, or uh, you know you think you're just waiting for it and it hasn't come yet, or for whatever reason you're just worried that you know maybe, maybe it's not coming, you can still head online to elections.ca and make sure that they have your information, the most up-to-date information, because uh, you're going to need that. Only takes a couple of minutes and will definitely make things easier when you do go to cast your ballot. So there's a few things to keep in mind there. Let me just do a quick recap. Advanced polls, like I said, are set to open this weekend for four days starting on Friday. Uh, if you want to know what's going on in terms of what the leaders are promising, well, you can check out the First Commission English Leadership Debate tonight that has all six parties uh, going head to head to head to head to head to head. I think I got the right number of heads in there. And, uh, of course, locally as well, we have our election forum set for tomorrow evening, which, again, you can hear right here on Radio NL. Got a good show coming up for you today, and uh, it's all going to be starting with my usual Monday guest, Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Like I had mentioned, we're going to be talking about a uh, $370 distracted driving ticket that was handed out to a woman in her 70s, apparently the first ticket she has ever received in her entire life. So we'll be chatting more about that case and what has happened since then, and uh, also a bit of an interesting um, decision from the Supreme Court of Canada as it relates to counter-protests. A man in 2009 was actually arrested in uh, Ontario um, apparently for his own safety because of his counter-protest that he was uh, having put on. Uh, there was some concern that it might escalate to violence, so they arrested this individual uh, you know, to make sure that he would be safe and protected from any violence that might erupt as a result of his counter-protest. Uh, so uh, the uh, Supreme Court of Canada actually came down with the decision that, uh, well, he probably shouldn't have been arrested for that. So we'll be chatting more about that with Kyla Lee as well. So stick around. I'll be joined by Kyla Lee after the break.
Election 43, healthcare and Trans Mountain, housing and ethics, taxes and climate change. What are the platforms and promises of your Kamloops Thompson Caribou candidates? And how might they affect your decision? Radio NL and Kamloops This Week present a special two-hour all-candidates election forum tomorrow night from 7 to 9 at the TRU Grand Hall. The all-candidates forum from Kamloops This Week, the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, and Radio NL 610 AM. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, October 7th. I am joined now by my usual Monday guest, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, thank you so much for joining me. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. How was, how was your weekend? Um, it was good. I got a lot of work done. <laughs> Always busy with you, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's just start off by talking about this distracted driving ticket that was handed out to a Richmond senior. Uh, now, she received a $370 distracted driving ticket for having her cell phone in the cup holder of her car. Uh, this woman's son actually reached out to you for help, from what I understand, after she received this ticket. And apparently, this is the first ticket this 70-plus-year-old woman has ever received. Um, now, we'll get to kind of what's happened in this particular case since that was brought to light. But I guess just what was your initial reaction when you received this message? I thought that it was awful that she was given this ticket. She wasn't violating the law. There was nothing that she did in this case that was illegal. It's not against the law to have a cell phone just sitting loose in the cup holder of your vehicle charging if you're not using it for anything else like GPS or music or touching it or looking at it. And she wasn't doing any of those things. So to me, it was absolutely ridiculous that she was given this ticket. So, I mean, what do you think would even, um, you know, make a, a police officer look to, to hand out a ticket like this? I mean, uh, would he have just seen a, a cell phone in view, I guess, in the front seat and think someone must be using it for a purpose other than um, well, for something, I guess, while, while driving? I guess, would that be the only indication that why one would receive a ticket like this? I can't imagine why a cop would just see a cell phone and say, well, I got to give you a ticket. Part of the problem is that the law used to be interpreted by the courts and by the police as meaning that simply having a phone loose and accessible in the vehicle violated the law. But that determination and that interpretation was overturned by the BC Supreme Court earlier this year. Unfortunately, not a lot of officers have actually received that message. And so there are officers who think if you have the ticket within reach and accessible to you, um, or the cell phone rather, within reach and accessible to you, then you're breaking the law even if you're not doing anything with it, which just isn't the case. Okay, so given all of that, obviously there is some, some precedent here in place uh, for this woman to, to go about making sure that you know this ticket doesn't go through. Um, so when you received the message, I guess, what, what action did you take to, to sort of reverse the situation? Well, the first thing that we did was file the ticket in dispute uh, for this woman. Um, I, I reached out to her son after he contacted me on Twitter and said, you know, let me take this case on. I'm willing to do this pro bono because this is so absurd and somebody with such a great driving record shouldn't be given a ticket in the first place. A warning would be more appropriate. Um, and uh, this ultimately turned into a very big news story. Um, and VPD uh, was notified through the media that this was going on and that this ticket had been issued and the staff sergeant uh, contacted my client on uh, Wednesday to let her know that uh, they were canceling the ticket and she wouldn't need to follow through with the dispute. Now, so obviously good news in this particular situation, but given the fact that, you know, police officers are still interpreting the law, um, you know, where the phone is visible, therefore, you know, he, he could be 
counted as or considered distracted driving. Um, obviously, this probably won't be the last time a ticket might be handed out in this fashion. So what is your concern uh, moving forward for other people? Obviously, um, you know, in this particular situation, the woman's son was able to reach out to you via Twitter, but maybe not every person is going to have that luxury of someone who's going to be looking out for them in this manner. So what is your concern about situations like this moving forward with other potentially seniors, I guess, who may not have access or, or may not be aware of some of those same ways or fashions to get a hold of people like yourself uh, to help fight these kinds of situations? I think my concern is really that you have people, especially senior citizens who are, are vulnerable, um, who are being ticketed unfairly. And if the police are not applying the law consistently and there's not enough direction either from government or from the courts that's being disseminated down to the individual officers who are handing out tickets, vulnerable people are going to be taken advantage of, whether it's willfully by police or whether it's negligently by police, as it was uh, appeared to be in this case. Um, and that that's a problem. We need to make sure that there's a better system in place to let police know when there are changes in the law and that those decisions are trickled down to every officer so that mistakes like this are never made. Do you think, you know, having a, a, a situation like this particular one, uh, maybe it wasn't as high profile to some people as uh, maybe it could be, but, um, you know, given what happened, do you hope that more police officers are kind of paying attention to things like this and are aware of, of what the, the grounds are to be handing out these kinds of tickets so this kind of situation doesn't happen again? I'm sure, like I said, it probably will, but hopefully at least maybe there's fewer of these cases as a result of this particular incident? Oh, absolutely. I hope that, you know, the more attention that gets paid to uh, these issues and the more times that we hear about people being wrongfully ticketed and, and the situation being put right, that that information ultimately makes its way to the to the individual officers and to people who receive the tickets. As a result of the attention that this incident got, lots of people have reached out to me to say that they got the same ticket in similar circumstances, either at the same time as this woman and by the same officer or on other occasions. So now people have been inspired to dispute tickets that they were wrongfully issued that they may not have done anything about had they not known this was the case. Um, and I have to ask you this question as well. I'm just out of curiosity for more more purpose than anything else. But obviously, you mentioned that you know distracted driving is not considered when just your phone is visible. But what if you have it uh, you know like mounted on your dashboard and you have your GPS running? Is that count as distracted driving? Because that's something that a lot of people do still do. You are allowed to use your GPS or play music through the speakers of your vehicle or talk or, or voice dictated text if your phone is securely mounted to the vehicle or to your person. So in those circumstances, you would be permitted to use the phone um, for those purposes, but you're not allowed to touch it and it's not allowed to be loose. Uh, joined on the phone here by Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. So let's let's move on to a, a different situation here. So um, late last week, the Supreme Court of Canada made a decision on on Friday in the case of Randy Fleming. Um, he took part in a counter protest flag raising rally in 2009 in Ontario, uh, arrested by police in order to prevent a breach of the peace by others. So basically, police essentially claiming he was being arrested for his own safety. Um, now, uh, a Friday's decision saw the Supreme Court say an intrusion upon liberty would be a measure of last resort, not a first option. And so to conclude otherwise would be generally to sanction actions that infringe the freedom of individuals significantly as long as they are effective. That is a recipe for a police state, not a free and domestic society, end quote. So, Kyla, um, this seems like a pretty significant decision in that any protest, no matter how likely it is to lead to violence, should be allowed to proceed until it actually does become unsafe to do so. Is that sort of how you interpret this decision? 
Yes, um, and it also, I think, confirms the principle that the police can't just interfere with individual liberty because they're concerned about something that may happen that you may have no part in other than being present at the time it's going to happen. And we've seen police do this, relying on what they call their common law power to arrest without a warrant. Um, We've seen police do this at lots of protests. People are taken away because somebody else might be offended by their presence. Um, and we, we, in a free and democratic society, allow the exchange of ideas, including through protesting. It's a protected form of, of expression in our society. And the Supreme Court of Canada has, has protected people's rights to participate in that and to not be interfered with by police if and until there are reasons to believe that that person has committed an offense. Um, so obviously that's uh, good news for, for people who in Canada do want to have, uh, you know, protests or counter protests because, uh, you know, it's obviously a right that we have here in this country and it's something that, you know, people do want to take advantage of when they're uh, unapproving of, of certain situations. So um, this, I guess, really is key in the fact that it will allow people to still have a voice um, and not be muzzled by, by a police officer or, or somebody else who maybe is trying to... Um, I guess the word would be to protect them, but that's not necessarily the case if there's no evidence that that's going to proceed. So um, probably a, a pretty pretty significant move in the way of free speech, I guess. Absolutely. And, and remember that the people who are going out to these protests, who want to engage either in the protests or in counter-protests, are ready for and prepared to be involved in, in debate, prepared to be you know, in, in, in a clash, as long as it doesn't become violent with another side, um, they know what they're signing up for. They don't, they aren't asking to be arrested to avoid that potential. They know that that's a potential. They're willing to participate in it. And the police shouldn't make those, those moral personal decisions for other people. That is exactly what the Supreme Court of Canada called it, a police state where the police decide for you what you get to do. Well, Kyla, uh, that pretty much wraps up our time here this morning. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Uh, I guess it'll be next Tuesday since we have Monday off. Well, thank you. I look forward to next Tuesday as well. Right on. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. That was Acumen Laws. Kyla Lee. And uh, just a quick update here. The uh, BC Green Party uh, leader, Andrew Weaver, did make an announcement here earlier today, about 15 minutes ago. Uh, he announced that he will not be seeking re-election in 2021 and will resign as party leader. Uh, Weaver says he expects a new leader to be elected by next summer. And uh, he just says of his exit, it's time to let another generation Take the lead. I'm sure we'll have more about that, more on that coming up in the news here in a little bit, so stick around for that. Um, coming up after the break, BC's Minister of Advanced Education Skills and Training celebrated the launch of 15 programs throughout the province aimed at helping survivors of violence or abuse access skills, training, and supports crucial to their independence and healing. And I'll be joined by Melanie Merck after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on a lovely Monday in Kamloops. BC's Minister of Advanced Education Skills and Training announced last week that it's launching 15 programs throughout the province aimed at helping survivors of violence or abuse access skills training and supports crucial to their independence and healing. Kamloops is among those places that will be receiving these services and here to talk about that is Minister Melanie Mark. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, how was your weekend? Busy. 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 Yeah. I'm, I'm a rugby mom, so I'm out there supporting my daughter and, and getting ready for session. We're back in Victoria, 
and uh, good to be back in the people's house. Right on. Well, that's not a sport you hear too many people, uh, you know, watching on a weekend. So that's pretty awesome to to hear that uniqueness. Um, I'll be in Cam- I'll be in Kamloops this weekend for the big tournament. Well, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> All right, so let's start talking about these services that are being made available here across BC to help victims of abuse. So from what I understand, I guess this is really going to help individuals re-enter the workforce. Is that sort of the main intent from these new services that you have announced? Most definitely. Um, this is The announcement we made was to provide an opportunity to open doors for people that have experienced abuse or violence um, to gain the confidence that they need, uh, to get the soft skills, the hard skills, training for um, jobs that are relevant in their community, and to really basically build a pathway to, for their independence and healing. Um, for Toronto, sorry, for Kamloops, um, the Open Door Social Services Society is going to be getting two-year funding, which is quite unique to this program. A lot of nonprofits have to apply annually, so this is going to give them that stability to support um, people trying to train in warehousing, social services, hospitality, tourism. These are all in-demand jobs. We need these people to be a part of the economy and to have the skills and training that they need. But we recognize as a government that if you're fleeing violence, you have other barriers to overcome. And we wanted to make sure that we put the right supports into place to help them uh, feel supported so that they can get that job. So providing $924,000 over two years, that will help you know about 94 people gain employment skills and counseling supports through Kawasa's a, a new Empower program. Um, so that 94 people, is that specific to Kamloops or is that um, you know looking more across the province? Yeah, so for Kamloops, um, the Open Door Society received 762000 over two years. It's going to support 120 participants, largely people that may have, uh, they may be persons with disabilities, uh, but the most important thing is that they're going to be getting training that's going to lead to a job. We recognize that people that have experienced violence have, have experienced major trauma. It's a big deal. It takes a lot of courage to leave whatever experience you've just faced to survive, not to mention get your housing in order, get your child child care in order, and then to go find a job. It's really easy to tell people, pull up your bootstraps and go get a job. Uh, in, in this case, we recognize that we need to help people with overcoming the trauma, get the counseling support that they need, have people, have the service providers like at the Open Door Social Services Society to encourage them to have the confidence to go in there and, and win over that employer to get their dream job. Um, building confidence in people is really, really important because we recognize that these uh, vulnerable people haven't typically had the confidence to go and get jobs because they've, they've, they've been suppressed by violence. So this is a big deal. I, I would say as minister, up until now, there was only one program in the province that supported persons fleeing violence or abuse. Now we're going to have 15 programs across this province with almost 10 times the budget. So this is a real game changer for people that um, really are trying to better their lives and get the confidence that they need to be independent. 
Yeah, in, in your experience as minister and, and you know, the people that you, you speak to on this issue, I guess just how, how tough is it for people to often re-enter the workforce? What tends to be some of the biggest hurdles for them, uh, you know, to, to get back at it? Is it a matter of, um, you know, confidence? Is it a matter of, uh, you know, not having the skills necessary to maybe find a new job? Or, or what seems to be some of the bigger hurdles that these people need to jump over in order to, to you know, like you said, better their lives and, and move on from tough situations that they might have been in? Well, Jeff, one of the first things that I was able to do with the Premier was eliminate the fees on adult basic education. Uh, for example, many people, I, I'm not, how you do, not sure how you did in, in math or your sciences, but a lot of these jobs require you to have your grade 12. So one of the you know, programs that we recognize as a government is to support people to get their adult upgrading. Another issue that we recognized in government was the gaps in literacy. Many adults, you know, some of the baby boomers don't have computer literacy. Um, 700,000 people in this province face barriers to literacy, so we've committed to programs like that. Uh, with this cohort, with this group of people, you're right, it is about self-confidence. Uh, many of them may not have finished their grade 12, they're newcomers to BC. Indigenous people represent 3.5 times uh, other Canadians experiencing violence. So um, we acknowledge that there is cultural barriers. We acknowledge that they may not have the schooling and experience. And this program is going to help them get those hard skills and those soft skills. It's about supporting their, their emotional trauma to know that they can nail that interview when they go in, whether they're applying to, you know, in workhouse safety or hospitality, which are in-demand jobs. But as minister, we just recognize that we need to try to keep as many doors open. It's the people that have the courage to walk through that doors that need our support. Uh, I can give you an example with our tuition waiver program in this province. People said, well, you know, aren't these kids, they've come from foster care, they've experienced barriers, how are, how are they going to do it? Well, I can almost, I can tell you that 800 young people are now going to college and university because of the program that we implemented. So it's really about government being on their side and supporting organizations like Open Door to give them the training close to home um, to build up that confidence to get, to get a job that's in demand. Uh, joined right now by BC Minister of Advanced Skills and Training, Melanie Merck. So one, one of the things I wanted to highlight there, because you had brought it up, was uh, talking about how uh, Indigenous women are three and a half times more likely uh, to experience violence. So given that fact, does any part of this program maybe specifically target those Indigenous people, that Indigenous population? Um, you know, is there more of a, a I don't want to say more of a focus, but is there part of this program that will have kind of a focus on that First Nation aspect? Out of the 15 programs, a lot of the service providers are offering that cultural competency, that trauma-informed practice to support TRC and recognize that uh, Indigenous people have faced different forms of, of trauma with the residential school experiences and the number of kids that are in care. So yes, uh, the Indigenous cultural competency training and those that... that um, recognizing the importance that they need ex have extra needs um, is a part of the objective for this program so i would say even the open door social services society does have indigenous cultural competency training as part of their um, opportunities to their their participants and I, I, as an indigenous person myself you know i've got um 
my riding Vancouver Mount Pleasant, there are many Indigenous women that have impacted, by, have been impacted by the missing murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. I talk to a lot of my constituents, and they want they want training. They want to go back to work. They want to um, get off of income assistance. They just feel that they need programming that is going to be a little bit more culturally sensitive. And I know that Open Door Services is going to be doing just that in Kamloops. Awesome. Um, and just to kind of, I guess, a follow up on that as well. I mean, when, when you're looking at uh, helping these individuals, you know, escape violence and re-enter the workforce and, and try to move on from these difficult situations, um, are the majority of them, do you find that they might be like unemployed or maybe working part time and just don't necessarily have the skills to, to find better employment? Or, you know, are they already working somewhere and just need to kind of move on to something else? Or I just, I'm just curious sort of what the transition looks like for some of these people. Are they, you know, just trying to to find full-time work? Are they just trying to find work in general? Do you have any idea what, what the kind of, um, you know, uh, employment status of some of these people would be as they look for, for these types of programs? With, with respect, Jeff, uh, you know, some of the participants that I've met, they, they have gone without having a job for 10, for 10 years. They haven't been in the workforce for 10 years. So, that's a big leap mm-hmm. to be on a person with disability to now have the courage and confidence to step up, go to one of these programs in their backyard and say, look, I'm ready. I'm ready to go back to work. I'm ready to get the skills. But I didn't go to school learning how to work on computers. I don't have the self-confidence. I didn't finish my grade 12. Um, so really helping them have that self-confidence, I can't understate it, especially when they're also trying to couple with the fact that they're fleeing violence, they're a survivor of abuse. Uh, so there's a lot going on there. Um, the woman that I met at Kawasa last week, newcomer women, women that have been on disability for many, many years, for them picking up the pieces is, is a heavy load, but knowing that they have those organizations close to home to support them and, and realize that they have value. They have value in the community, they're not alone and that they're going to have that peer support to help them cross the finish line. And the, and the finish line may very well be becoming a server. But you know what, as minister, I need people as servers. I need people in the trades. I need people in all. There's going to be 900,000 jobs in the next 10 years. So we need these people to have the confidence to enter the workforce. That's awesome. I, that's what I figured, but I just wanted to ask the question just to, to really understand sort of what what was being accomplished here. Well, Melanie, I think that pretty much wraps up our time. Is there anything else that you want to throw on the table while I have you here? No, thanks for covering the story. Um, and maybe we'll see you at the rugby field on, on Saturday. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining thanks. me and, and have a great rest of your Monday. Thank you. Awesome. That was BC's Minister of Advanced Skills and Training, Melanie Merck. So for those who are looking for any more information on these programs you can uh, or how to access them, you can check out kawasa.ca or workbc.ca to find a little more information there. Coming up after the break, I'll be chatting with the CEO of RoomView to talk about the number of realtors in Vancouver and the fact that uh, the number of active realtors is actually decreasing for the first time in a decade. We'll talk more about that after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here on Monday, October 7th. And of course, thanks for tuning in today. 
A real estate marketing company in Vancouver has been looking at the number of active realtors in the city and how the numbers have fluctuated over the years. Well, for the first time in a decade, those numbers appear to be dropping. Here to talk about this is the CEO of RoomView Technologies, Sam Merbod. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me in the show. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So let's just start by taking a quick look at these numbers. So you noticed a downturn in the number of realtors in the Lower Mainland for the first time in, in about, about uh, excuse me, about 10 years. Uh, what does that downfall look like right now? Just how many fewer retailer, realtors have you seen active in this study? Okay, so um, uh, when we go back to our data, uh, let's say about um, since uh, 2000, at the early 2000, uh, we see that uh, in the beginning of uh, 2004, 2005, we had about about, about 7,000 agents uh, for the entire Greater Vancouver uh, real estate market. That number went up to all the way to 14,000 in the 2016, and now we're seeing a bit of a drop, about a thousand uh, drop in our data. And that's, that's interesting because this is the first time since the recession of 2008 that we're seeing this uh, kind of a drop. Yeah, that's a, a pretty significant drop, too, when you're talking about 1,000 people. So what do you think are some of the contributing factors to this dip? I think some of them are probably a little bit obvious in some of the changes in the real estate market over the past 12 months uh, you know, here in, in B.C., but maybe just kind of reiterate what some of those factors are that you think might be contributing to people sort of leaving the, the real estate market. Um, well, you've got multiple uh, uh, municipal level, uh, federal level, and uh, uh, kind of provincial level taxations and uh, policy changes. So from the farm buyers home tax to um, uh, the B20 mortgage stress test and so on, these changes all contribute um, to, the, um, to the changes that, that we're seeing in the number of realtors. Um, the bigger one, I would say, is uh, possibly the federal um, mortgage stress tests that, that have been added in the past uh, um, kind of year and a half, so starting 2018. So that's that's possibly one of the things that are that are pushing for this change. Um, now, this uh, this uh, data also correlates with our other findings at RoomView, where we where we see that uh, about. Um, 17% of the market is controlled by about only 1% of realtors uh, in the greater Vancouver area. So that's, that's, a, that's an interesting number to look at because when you think of all the realtors that are leaving the industry, um, still about 1% um, of the market control quite a bit of, 1% uh, of the realtors control about quite a bit of the market. Yeah, it sounds like it's probably pretty difficult then to find new listings for a lot of people if, if that's the case and such a large majority is, is controlled by such a small amount of realtors. Um, given all of that data, it sounds like some of this downturn might have been foreseeable. I guess, were you, were you surprised at all by the findings and the fact that you are seeing a thousand fewer active realtors in the area at this point in time? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, when the market drops, obviously it gets more expensive to maintain a real estate license. And uh, that's what we, that's what we've um, seen as well. Well, if 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 we knew the market would have dropped, then yes, we would be less surprised. But 
since the market is dropping, we, we, it's expected to see a few realtors leaving the industry. Um, it's, it's pretty expensive to maintain a license. When you look at it, uh, there's monthly fees, there's desk fees with different brokerages, such as Remax, uh, Roller Page, and so on. And um, the other thing is, um, obviously, there is uh, uh, lots of uh, governmenting bodies or governing bodies, uh, such as the Council of British Columbia, where you have to kind of pay your dues and uh, keep your subscription um, to them. Uh, joined on the phone here by the CEO of RoomView, Sam Merbod. So uh, is is there concern that, you know, if these factors that are potentially leading to people leaving the industry, you know, are, are kind of figured out over time? Obviously, like you had mentioned, there's a number of things, uh, you know, uh, policy changes that have sort of impacted the real estate market. But over time, obviously, you know, people will learn to, to navigate these new processes and, and uh, hopefully at some point, you know, it'll help the, the market will, will rebound and, 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 you know, realtors will start to see uh, more available properties that they can take on. Um, is there any concern that, you know, with so many realtors sort of leaving or letting their licenses lapse and expire, that there could be a shortfall of realtors in the future? I mean, it kind of sounds like that's probably not going to be the case, given the fact that so few realtors actually control such a large majority of the market. But is that at all possible that you could see at some point in the near future just uh, not enough realtors, given the fact that so many are leaving? I mean, if you look at the population of uh Greater Vancouver, and we also look at the number of realtors that we had in um, the early 2000s. Uh, we only had about 7,000 realtors, and that seemed to be working fine. So, uh, unless I think half of the realtors leave, we still should be okay in terms of because the population hasn't grown as much as the number of realtors, kind of like doubling. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't think there would be a shortage of realtors, and uh, we shouldn't be having problems like that. So maybe even it could be a good news story for those who are, you know, wanting to stick it out and make sure they stay in the industry and keep their license fees up that, uh, you know, if more and more people do start looking for other avenues to, to, to gain employment and, and an income, that um, those who do stick around might actually end up benefiting as a result of, of kind of sticking it out through these tougher times because there might potentially be uh, more of a market share for them, I guess, in the not too distant future. Is that uh, a possibility that uh, you're, you're looking at right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we look at because uh, we, we've, we've looked at multiple angles of uh, um, of of this data, and uh, one of the report that we've looked at is that um, the number of the average number of listings per um, um, realtor. So in the early 2000s, about uh, the average number for every the average number of listings per realtor. So an average realtor would have listed about 10 homes a year. Now that number is closer to. Um, um, four or five combined with attached and detached properties. So um, I think looking at that data also tells us that um, realtors used to be um, getting more listings or uh, list more homes for sale um, compared to like uh, about 10 years ago compared to now. Mm-hmm. So looking at it that way. Yeah, definitely some interesting data there, Sam. Um, you know, definitely something for people to think about if they are looking to get into into the industry of, of uh, you know, being a real estate agent and sort of what work might be available to them. Um, maybe not the best time right now, but it sounds like it could potentially be the right time moving forward if more and more people do decide to leave the industry. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You as well. That was Sam Merbod, the CEO 
of RoomView, talking about uh, fewer retailers in the Lower Mainland for the first time in over a decade. And as he had mentioned, about a thousand people have left the industry, but still uh, quite a significant number of people in the industry. And obviously, uh, you know, 10 listings uh, a year down to four in recent history. It's a pretty significant drop off. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted.